Hello, today is Tuesday, July 23rd. This is Perspective from Politics NC. We've had a bit of a respite here for a while, but we're back and there's plenty to talk about in North Carolina politics. So Thomas, I'll start off with something a bit topical because you wrote about it today, but there is a sole Republican on the uh, North Carolina Supreme Court, Justice Newby, and he's made a couple headlines lately, raised some eyebrows, and I know you wrote about that today. So could you uh, talk through that a little bit to start us off? Yeah, last week, and, and I think it was actually at a fundraiser is where he said it, but there, yes. a, record, a, a recording came out um, where he asked a rhetorical question. He said, what is the most dangerous branch of government? The North Carolina Supreme Court which is the court that he sits on. And then he turned around and he, he said uh, all six of his colleagues were AOC-type uh, justices, uh, referring to uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, the, the, the congresswoman from New York who's got everybody riled up. But, you know, it, it just it's not a good look. I mean, you know, it used to be that the Supreme Court was was a dignified place and the members kind of kept to themselves, you know, following the example of the U.S. Supreme Court. Even though they're, they're justices of different philosophies up there, they generally don't talk to the press. They don't, they don't disparage their, their colleagues, um, even if they write, you know, sometimes sharply critical differing opinions. But Newby just let loose on them. And, you know, it's kind of ironic that he complained so much about not getting the chief justice's spot. And here he is disparaging all of his colleagues who had nothing to do with him not getting it. But uh, it's probably the least judicial um, attack that I've seen uh, in, in Supreme Court races. And it does not bode well for moving forward. But back in, in fact, you know, what I said is, is it may be a reflection of just who Newby is, that he's just not, he doesn't hold, have the right judicial temperament. When he didn't get the appointment, um, he had a little bit of a ten- temper tantrum instead of graciously uh, congratulating his colleague, Cherie Beasley, who did get the, get the appointment. And, you know, and Justice Beasley was the first African-American woman to, to hold this position. It was quite an honor. And even though he knew he was going to run against her, there was no need to take a shot at her. What it really showed was a guy who does not deserve to be in the position of Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. But is that who the Republican Party is today? I mean, it's really, they're following the lead from the top down. It's exactly how Donald Trump treats people. It's, it's, it's calling people names, demeaning them, debasing them. And, uh, you know, I mean, he, he has done irreparable damage to the, to the office of the presidency, and it's going to take somebody with, with uh, a whole lot of character to restore it. But now um, his, his kind of disreputable uh, name-calling and juvenile uh, temper tantrum seems to have flowed down uh, into, the, into the GOP uh, electorate. And, um, you know, newbie, newbie – Ten years ago, if Newby had made these comments, Republicans, Democrats, commentators, everybody would have dismissed him, and it would have hurt his chances to be uh, win win the election as chief justice. I imagine he would have had a, a primary from somebody in the Republican Party. Instead, he's being cheered along, 
And it's really a sad state of our politics. But it's also, I think, uh, what's happened to the Republican Party under Donald Trump. Well, I do wonder your thoughts since, you know, North Carolina took a, a different trajectory than most states when they made those races partisan a few years ago, and they had not been partisan, I think, for a while. So is this kind of the logical conclusion of making what should be, in theory, a nonpartisan position into something that uh, has to be nakedly partisan because they would um, have to be fighting each other to get on the ballot? Um, I, you know, I don't think it's necessarily a logical conclusion, but I, but I think given where the Republican Party is today, it's it's uh, it's not an it's 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 not an unsurprising conclusion. I mean, we had partisan uh, races back in the you know before about two thousand, and and people didn't they didn't disparage their fellow uh, members of the court, um, but by making it partisan, it's now the party of Trump. It's not a Republican Party that I grew up around. It's the party of Trump. And so in that sense, yes, making it partisan gives him license to do this. Uh, you know, it also says that, look, I'm not really interested in, in getting support from anybody on one side of the aisle. So we're going to have a, a court, a, a highly partisan court. And, you know, Republicans argue, well, they were always partisan. We just didn't know how they were registered. That's not exactly true. There were plenty of people on that court um, uh, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, who may have been Democrat or Republican, but if you looked at the way they ruled, you couldn't really tell that one way or the other. Um, and and they, you know, they they downplayed their their partisanship, even if the partisans in elections tried to elect Democrats and Republicans to the court. Well, that, what's happening with the North Carolina Supreme Court is of uh, particular import for us now because given the Supreme Court and the United States Supreme Court's decision to leave questions of gerrymandering to the states, that means that the current case going through the court system in North Carolina over gerrymandering will eventually end up in this uh, NC Supreme Court where the Democrats have a 6-1 advantage again with Newby being the sole Republican there. So I know there's been a lot of drip drip of information from this and there's been good coverage from North Carolina reporters about what's happening in uh, this case. But do you feel one way or another about what the outcome might be so far? Have you been paying much attention to it or is this just this is, I guess, what the Supreme Court uh, federally wanted to happen is for the states to deal with it themselves. So that seems to be uh, playing out right now, at least. Right. And I, you know, I'm not sure they necessarily thought that the, uh, or, or they didn't intend specifically for the, for the courts to take it up, but they did intend specifically for the states to take it up. And in North Carolina, where we are is there were already, I mean, th this, this lawsuit, um, did not come up since the Supreme Court decision. It was it's it's been around yeah. for a long time. Um, it just kind of coincidentally came up right after the court made their decision, or whatever you know, two weeks after the court made their decision. And it's been interesting to watch a little bit. It it, it it's drawn out, and um, you know we're, we're seeing both sides give uh, give uh, expert testimony about why they're. Either why the part the districts are inherently partisan, and or, or why they're inherently uh, 
they're not uh, that partisan and that, that we just need to let the legislature do its job. But, you know, it's been a long trial. It's not like they it, they went before the court for a short hearing. Um, they've been, uh, and they're not in front of the Supreme Court right now. That, that's not, they're in right. front of a three-judge a three judge panel of, of Superior Court judges right this second. And, uh, um, and these people will make a decision, and whatever the decision is, everybody assumes it will be appealed, in which case this, the appeals court will take it up, and then the Supreme Court will take it up. It seems to me like it's it's uh you know it, it's gonna it, it it'll be hard to get it get districts changed before the election season starts in March of 2020. But we've been here before, so. right? And then then we'll deal with the census and redistricting again and reapportionment. So the the court sagas in terms of districts in North Carolina, I'm I'm sure for the foreseeable future are not going to uh, disappear. Right. But I guess the final issue I think we should touch on before we go, because I know there's inclement weather inbound for all of us. There is a new challenger in the Republican primary for governor, I believe Holly Grange uh, representative. So Dan Forrest was kind of the heir apparent, it seemed like, but now he has a legitimate uh, opponent there in that primary. So do you, is that indicative to you of maybe some, discontent within the Republican party with Dan Forrest, or maybe they don't think he's the strongest or is it just healthy competition? Um, well, I think, I think part of it, I think all, all of, all of the above. I mean, I, I've been hearing that the, the national Dems have not been enthralled with, with, uh, Dan Forrest. Uh, Forrest is a, a very, uh, strong social conservative. Um, he's probably out of step with most of mainstream North Carolina. The Nationals know that. He's exactly the type of Republican candidate who tends to lose this state. So they don't want him. Um, I think you've probably got some uh, Republicans, rank-and-file Republicans, who aren't real happy with him. Clearly, Holly Grange felt like there, there must be a constituency out there. Um, and, and then it, 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 it's also just the fact that you've got a, you've got a Democratic governor and – Nobody really gets a cakewalk in most of these these primaries uh, historically. So whether she can get the traction she needs and raise the money she needs, we'll we'll have to see. But she's got a good profile. I mean, she's you know retired military, um, and she comes out of Wilmington, which is not as good a base as as uh, Forrest has out of Charlotte. And and obviously he's done a good job of actually building a network and keeping it running. So she's playing a little bit of catch up. But we'll we'll we will see how much dissatisfaction there is within Republican ranks by how much traction Holly Grange can get uh, getting started uh, this this summer. Right, and then the you know when she began to file means it'll be a while before we know how much money she's raised either in terms of uh, how competitive that is, and that is with the backdrop of a unified Democratic Party behind Roy Cooper, who raised uh, quite a lot of money himself um, this year so far. So I'm sure that will be quite the governor's race uh, next year in North Carolina, especially with so much money in the Senate race and obviously the presidential. I don't think there'll be any shortage of news to follow in the next 16, 18 months in this state. No, I don't think so. I mean, Cooper raised $4.5 million in the first half of this year. And North Carolina... Con, uh, you know, they only have reporting in odd numbered years. They only have reporting 
on June 30th and December 31st. So like you said, we won't know about Holly Grange. Um, and I had not seen a report yet from, from Forrest, so I don't know what he, what he raised, but it's probably not going to get close to Cooper's millions. And, um, you know, but that, given the fact that Cooper's got a net positive rating, he's got $4.5 million. He's not going to spend any of that on a primary challenger. It really bodes well for uh, the, the, the beginning of his reelection campaign. Right. And just to book in this, I, I had this pulled up. I tweeted it uh, last week, but 92% of that money came from North Carolina, 5.6 million cash on hand. And then uh, about two thirds of the contributions were below $100. So that, that mirrors a little bit what we've seen um, in the presidential race in terms of Democrats, that there's seems like a lot of energy from um, small dollar donors. It's not necessarily a bunch of wealthy people tossing in thousands. It's it's a lot of grassroots support, seemingly. Yeah, that, that has really been a remarkable shift in Democratic fundraising over the last few cycles, is watching the growth of these low-dollar do- donors. Um, and they, you know, they, they are clearly going beyond presidential. I mean, it started, I think, mainly with presidential and, and a, a few very high-profile uh, Senate and, and gubernatorial races, and now it's spread to just about every major Democratic campaign is raising lot, lots of low-dollar contributions, which allows them to steer away from special interests. We'll see if that has an impact over the long term in policy. Well, I think that wraps us up nicely today. I, I think we'll uh, reconvene uh, maybe tomorrow and see what's happened, probably some updates on the budget perhaps, which we didn't get to today, but is still sort of stalling and um, maybe a little more on the gerrymandering case. So for Politics NC, this is Kirk Kovac here with Thomas Mills. Thomas, thanks for dropping by a few minutes today. Thanks a lot, Kirk.